Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We began the show one month ago on April 1st with 4,564 deaths from coronavirus in the United States. Now today, on May 1st, the death toll right now tops 64,203. Just a stunning and tragic number. Moments ago, the Trump administration announced emergency authorization for remdesivir. That's a medication that early trials have shown help treat coronavirus, treating it, shortening the recovery time for patients. We'll have more on that with Dr. Sanjay Gupta in a second. But first, the other big news on the health front, a team of leading pandemic experts predicting today that barring the discovery of a vaccine, the devastation in the United States is not ending anytime soon, detailing in a new report that coronavirus is likely to continue spreading for at least another 18 months to two years until about 70 percent of the U.S. population has been infected. Seventy percent. The experts recommending the U.S. prepare for a worst case scenario that includes a second big wave of infections this fall and winter. And even in their best-case scenario, more people in this country will continue to die of coronavirus. Now, I spoke with Michael Osterholm. He's one of the authors of this new study. And he told me this is what's going to happen unless, A, there's a vaccine, or, B, unless the Trump administration begins what we've been discussing now for, for weeks, an intense program of testing hundreds of millions of Americans repeatedly, and then contact tracing and isolating those infected. But there has been little indication that the Trump administration is attempting anything remotely like that. A stark warning, as today marks more states reopening non-essential businesses. Dr. Anthony Fauci telling CNN that communities can expect to see local spikes of coronavirus cases, and again, emphasizing the need for widespread testing. But consider this, today, on May 1st, There is not even enough testing available for all of the 100 U.S. senators who are returning to the Capitol to try to lead the nation out of the pandemic. The Capitol physician says testing is limited and only available for those who are feeling sick. For all the insistence by President Trump and others that testing shortages are not real, currently the United States Senate is not able to muster the resources to conduct 100 tests. And amid all this depressing news, a reminder that this week, President Trump called his response to the pandemic, quote, spectacular, and his aide and son-in-law, Jared Kushner, called it a great success story. And as CNN's Nick Watt reports, the number of new confirmed cases per day here in the U.S. continues to be in the tens of thousands. This virus might circulate among us for another two years, says one new study, until 60 to 70 percent of us 
are infected. This is going to can be, continue to be a rolling situation throughout the world, not just our country, for these months ahead. So expect many more New Yorks to occur. It's very likely they will. The U.S. death count doubled these past two weeks, and one newly updated model from Northeastern University now suggests 100,000 people in this country will die by midsummer. This morning, Katy, Texas, a line at Snappy's Cafe and Grill. Today, restaurants, movie theaters and malls can reopen in the state at a quarter capacity. Beginning to see the beaches open, beginning to see guests on the beach. But up in Dallas County yesterday, nearly 180 new cases, the biggest single day spike they've seen since all this began. We're reopening today and it does feel like a bit of a gamble. Partial opening now underway in at least 32 states. But it doesn't appear any of them meet one of the vague White House guidelines that states have a downward trajectory of documented cases within a 14-day period. There are some states, some cities or what have you, who are looking at that and kind of leapfrogging over the first checkpoint. And I mean, obviously, you could get away with that, but you're making a really significant risk. A vaccine, maybe by January? If we didn't care about safety... We'd be using these vaccines today. On testing, the Washington Post now reporting that Maryland's governor was fearful the federal government might confiscate the half million tests he bought direct from South Korea. We guarded that cargo from whoever might interfere. The plane landed in Baltimore last month, the cargo now at an undisclosed location. We landed it there with a large contingent of Maryland National Guard and Maryland State Police. Uh, because this was an enormously valuable uh, payload. Down in Florida, they'll start reopening Monday with restaurants and retail. But the state's three largest and hardest hit counties are excluded. I don't know that we're going to be able to open up our beaches uh, really before June. In California, Orange County beaches closed again by the governor after last weekend's crowds. Two cities say they'll file injunctions. <laughs> Meanwhile, in Michigan... I know that people are itching to get back to work, and I get it, and I respect it, and it's okay to feel that way. There's nothing that I want more than to just flip a switch and return to normal. But that's not how it's going to work. So the governor, in the shadow of armed protesters at the Capitol, extended her state's stay-at-home order through May 28th. Yesterday's scene at the Capitol was disturbing. And we have just heard from the governor in California who says that we are now days, not weeks away from some meaningful rollbacks in restrictions. And the CDC dropped a very interesting report today about the early spread of this virus in this country. And they have listed a few issues that helped that rapid spread. Among them, the continued influx of travelers from overseas hotspots and cruise ships. Also, some big events like a conference up in Boston, uh, Mardi Gras, also a few funeral in Georgia. Also, the fact that it was still flu season made it hard to detect some early cases. And despite what the president says nearly every single day, another early issue, according to the CDC, Jake, limited testing. All right, Nick, thanks so much. Appreciate it. And joining me now is CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, the the breaking news, um, remdesivir, Receiving emergency use authorization from the FDA for extremely ill COVID-19 patients who are hospitalized. How big a deal is this? 
It's the only thing out there that has even this a sort of emergency use authorization. I mean, there's, there's nothing else right now for this. So it's, in that sense, it's a big deal. And, uh, you know, it's the only thing that has been shown to have some sort of impact. So this uh, EUA or this emergency use authorization is, is, was, was, expected, uh, was expected. I think in the initial part when they trial these types of medications, they always trial it on the, on the sickest patients uh, first, Jake. I think the question now going forward is to, to really identify who is likely to most benefit from a medication like this, how, when to give it, how to give it, all that sort of stuff. And we just have the sound in right now from President Trump uh, officially making this announcement. Let's roll that tape. I'm pleased to announce that Gilead now has an EUA from the FDA for remdesivir. And you know what that is, because that's been the hot thing also in the papers and in the media for the last little while. An important treatment for hospitalized coronavirus patients. Now, remdesivir, as we've, we've discussed, it's been found to help patients recover faster, about a, a third faster, I think, right. in this early NIH trial. Hmm. Uh, right now, it can only be used on hospitalized patients. It's delivered uh, f- from IV, not orally. Now, the CEO did say today he hopes it can be used earlier in patients with a light skin injection or orally. What do you think? How soon might we see something like that? Well, you know, I, I don't know about uh, whether orally or giving it as a, as a uh, skin injection underneath the skin, uh, how well that will work. I guess the studies will show that. But in terms of giving it earlier, you, you keep in mind this is an antiviral medication. So the way that it's likely working is one of two things, sort of stopping or, or, or at least slowing down how quickly the virus can enter cells and how quickly the virus replicates once it's in the body. So in, if you think of it that way, it would make sense to give it earlier. Uh, that, that would probably be when it has the most impact. And you could probably identify people who are at highest risk because they have some underlying condition. And that might be the population of people who, who would most benefit from this. I think, Jake, so take a look at the numbers there. You know, the duration of illness is really what was significant here. 15 days without the medication, 11 days with the medication in terms of the duration of illness. The mortality rates were better as well, but when you actually did the math on that uh, based on the sample size, it wasn't significant enough to say, hey, look, definitely the medication is, is reducing mortality. But I think, you know, Jake, uh, I thought it was really interesting. Um, Anthony Fauci, when he was describing this, sort of likened it to AZT at the beginning of the HIV AIDS epidemic. At that time, there was nothing else either until AZT came along. It wasn't a panacea, but they built on it. So, for example, with remdesivir, if it's given early, might you give an anti-inflammatory later to try and decrease the inflammation and possibly help save lives that way? I think that's where scientists are starting to head, uh, go with this. So that's some potential good news. Uh, let's turn to not so great yeah. news. Um, infectious disease expert uh, Michael Osterholm and his pandemic uh, team, they uh, issued a report saying they expect at least two more years of the coronavirus. They anticipate 60 to 70 percent of the population will be infected unless two things happen. One, there's a vaccine. We all still hope for that. And two, there is what we've been discussing now for weeks, Sanjay, which is a nationwide approach led by the federal government and take carried out by the states of testing everyone repeatedly uh, and then isolating and doing contact tracing for individuals uh, who are infected, who to test positive. We talked to uh, an economist yesterday who said that would cost about $100 billion. Why aren't we doing that? Uh, This is what I don't understand. We all want to get back to work. We see all these states doing this. We're spending trillions of dollars 
uh, on bailouts and packages to help people survive. Why not spend a few hundred billion and, and really actually address the issue? Yeah, I, I totally agree, Jake. And, you know, what uh, Romer, uh, the, the guest that you had on yesterday, a really interesting interview, he's basically saying the whole country should be tested every 14 days, 600 million tests a month, roughly. Uh, you know, I, I think until we have some sort of therapeutic or a vaccine, it, it does make sense. It sounds outrageous, I think, for people to hear those numbers. But the reality is, and, and again, your guest made this point, is that we do have the capacity. If you start looking at places like the Broad Institute and university laboratories and public health laboratories, what we've been stymied by, as you well know, Jake, is just the, the basic supplies still, the swabs, the reagents, all that sort of stuff. We would need to, to, to get those supplies, and, and we should be able to. I mean, this is a, a country that has done some remarkable things. The idea that we uh, have, haven't you know, been sort of hamstrung by just these basic supplies does seem a little ridiculous at this point. Until we get a vaccine, how are people going to have the confidence that they don't have the virus in their body, even if they're feeling fine? How are they going to have the confidence to start reemerging into the public uh, without being tested in some regular way? That is the point a lot of people are making. This plan that uh, that Romer put forward and the Harvard roadmap put forward, it's 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 a uh, it's an audacious plan. But this this is an unprecedented time. But when you hear the governors or the university presidents or others talk about their plans, uh, which include, in some cases, testing. Uh, we just heard from somebody at University of Michigan talking to Kate Baldwin. But in other cases, it really seems like a lot of, OK, let's put on masks and, and social distance and cross our fingers. And I'm sorry, but hope is not science. And the thing about it is that, that uh, you know, physical distancing clearly uh, can help. But I think if, when we've seen this downward trend in some places, or at least uh, not having as high a trend as far as hospitalizations and deaths, it's because people have stayed at home, the ultimate sort of physical distancing. I think as soon as you start going out in public, um, uh, because of duration of contact with people, because of shared public spaces, as good as you may be, as careful as you may be, you're gonna, there's going to be surfaces that are contaminated. People are going to get infected. It's just very hard, and it's not really the fault of anyone. It's just the, the human behavior in those situations. So until people can be tested, if they are positive, they get isolated. That's critical, and it's worked throughout history in terms of actually curbing epidemics. Keep in mind, Jake, you know, you think about things like SARS. We always bring that up. 8,000 people around the world were infected with SARS ultimately. Now, it wasn't as contagious as this, obviously, but it was basic public health tools that made a difference there. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Look forward to seeing you again on Monday. And be sure to listen to Sanjay's daily podcast, Coronavirus Fact versus Fiction, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. A once-daily event just happened at the White House for the first time in more than 400 days. We'll explain what that was next and ahead. A CNN investigation, a company with unproven technology, gets the most U.S. funding to develop a coronavirus vaccine. How a Shark Tank-style conversation may have convinced President Trump. Stay with us. Breaking news in our politics lead, new White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany just held her first official briefing in the Bush or Obama administration, the press secretary holding a briefing was not a big deal. It happened nearly every day. But the Trump White House, of course, has become such an aberration that a press secretary holding a briefing is actually notable. Breaking news for the first time in more than 400 days, the White House press secretary actually deigned to take questions from reporters on live television. 
This afternoon, McEnany defended the president's handling of the coronavirus pandemic and confirmed that the administration is considering punishments for China's, the Chinese government's early handling of the virus. As CNN's Caitlin Collins now reports. Have an announcement for you. In the first briefing by a White House press secretary in 417 days, Kaylee McEnany made a promise to reporters. I will never lie to you. You have my word on that. After CNN reported that the White House is considering ways to punish China for how it handled the coronavirus outbreak, McEnany said President Trump has been displeased with the country. And I won't get ahead of the president's decision. Or The new press secretary also said the president wasn't contradicting the U.S. intelligence community when he claimed he's seen evidence that suggests the coronavirus originated in a lab. Well, the president's statement is consistent with the other intelligence assessments. The day before, Trump claimed he's seen evidence that gives him, quote, a high degree of confidence that the coronavirus originated in that lab. Yes, I have. Yes, I have. But he cited no proof to back up his assertion. I can't tell you that. I'm not allowed to tell you that. The comments undercut a rare public statement from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence that was issued only hours earlier. The statement was made on behalf of the entire intelligence community and said it agreed with the scientific consensus that COVID-19 virus was not man-made or genetically modified. The statement added that the intelligence agencies are still investigating whether the outbreak began through contact with infected animals or if it was the result of an accident at a lab in Wuhan. Trump appeared caught off guard by the statement. Who is that? Who is that that said that? The office of the director of national intelligence. Yeah, but who, who in particular? Who was the man that made that statement? It was, it was a statement that the ODI... Oh, he would know that, huh? National intelligence. His own scientists have cited studies dismissing the theory that it was created in a lab. The mutations that it took to get to the point where it is now is totally consistent with a jump of a species from an animal to a human. President Trump leaves Washington today for the first time since March when he traveled to Virginia for the send-off of the USNS Comfort. This time, he won't be going far. Trump and a small group of aides will spend the weekend at Camp David. It's a wonderful place, really, to be, to think, to strategize, and he will be having some meetings there. Now, Jake, during her first briefing, Kaylee McEnany also went to bat for Mike Flynn, of course, the president's former national security advisor, who later pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI. That comes as you're seeing more and more people in the administration turn to defend him following the president's lead, including even the vice president, Mike Pence, saying yesterday that he believed that Flynn may have unintentionally misled him. Of course, he was fired for not only lying to the FBI, but also to the vice president. And he also lied to the then chief of staff and the then press secretary all at the same time as people are raising the question about whether or not this means that there is a pardon in the future for Mike Flynn. All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House, thank you so much. And you can tune in this Sunday for a CNN special report, The Pandemic and the President. My team and I investigate how we got here. The Chinese government, the World Health Organization, governors, President Trump and the Trump administration. As coronavirus was spreading throughout the world, what did they do? What did they not do? It's at 10 p.m. on CNN on Sunday. Coming up, a CNN investigation, how one company got nearly half a billion dollars to develop a coronavirus vaccine without ever having brought an approved vaccine to market before. Stay with us. The race to develop an effective coronavirus vaccine is in full force, and one of the companies creating the most buzz got nearly a half billion dollars from the federal government. But that same company has never brought an approved vaccine to market. 
CNN senior investigative correspondent Drew Griffin explains why so many people are pinning their hopes on this unproven technology. Three weeks ago, Ian Hayden was injected with one of the first possible vaccines against the novel coronavirus. He runs, takes his temperature several times a day, and he has not gotten sick. Today, I feel exactly like I did two months ago. I have absolutely no symptoms, nothing to report. Hayden was injected with a vaccine using a new medical technology developed by a company called Moderna, which has never had a drug or vaccine approved for market. The basic technology, synthesizing messenger RNA, a molecule in a person's body, prompting the body to make its own medicine. In this case, directing living cells to kill off any novel coronavirus. In theory, the science behind the vaccine should work. In reality, no one knows for sure. Moderna's CEO promoted the company's technology and speed at this meeting at the White House March 2nd, which President Trump ran like an episode of Shark Tank. We want it fast, okay? Most of the companies were talking vaccines sometime in 2021. When Moderna's CEO, Stefan Bancel, took his turn, he told the president this. And then it's going to be a few months to get the human data that will allow us to pick a therapeutic dose to start the phase two right away. So you're talking over the next few months, you think you would have a vaccine? Correct. No. With phase two. Yeah. You wouldn't have a vaccine. You'll have a vaccine to go into your test. Phase two. Dr. Anthony Fauci tried to temper the enthusiasm. I like the sound of a couple of months better, I must be honest. The next day, the FDA greenlit Moderna's product for a trial, and within weeks, the federal government pledged to give Moderna up to $483 million, more than any other vaccine company. Moderna had an edge over other companies. Its scientists had already been collaborating with the NIH on a vaccine for another similar virus, so it was able to quickly pivot. But Professor Nikolai Petrovsky, who's working with a competitor to Moderna, is just one of the experts who question whether the U.S. government's investment makes sense. If we want to really have an impact on this pandemic, then we should be using vaccine platforms that have been proved to be safe and effective uh, rather than an unproven technology. We have delivered on everything that we have promised. Dr. Tal Zaks is Moderna's chief medical officer, interviewed via computer from his base in Boston. Actually, the public investment proportionally is a small investment on top of what this company has invested in its core technology for years now. For the last decade, the company has been trying to use its mRNA technology to cure cancer, restore damaged tissues, even cure heart disease, and develop vaccines. The research promising, the results mixed. Moderna has never brought a vaccine to market never had a drug FDA approved. And skeptics are wondering why your company was able to uh, achieve this contract. We're a young company with an emerging technology, and for that reason, we have not yet uh, brought anything to full licensure. We have time and again demonstrated clinical results in phase one uh, across multiple different vaccine applications. But vaccine development is tough. Even the lead investigator for Moderna's vaccine trial at Emory University says nothing is certain. If it's successful, it could allow us to shorten the timeline for developing new vaccines in the future. But it comes with its own challenges. Dr. Evan Anderson says challenges for this type of vaccine include that it's difficult to store, difficult to mass produce, and no one knows yet whether it's effective. The NIH is testing Moderna's vaccine on humans without waiting for animal trials a speed that was unheard of before the pandemic. 
The company is already preparing to produce its vaccine in mass quantities on the sheer hope it gets approved and can be distributed almost immediately. The biggest source of pressure is the fact that, you know, this is personal. I think for my colleagues and I who are in the front line of trying to develop a vaccine, it's an equal weight of the sense of potential that we can do something about it and a tremendous sense of responsibility that we have to do something about it. Jake, there are dozens of vaccine candidates out there. Moderna is one of the favorites. It's a huge, huge if. But if they can get through phase two, phase three, Moderna says it can be delivering millions of vaccines per month at the end of this year, tens of millions by 2021. We'll see. Jake? All right. We'll see indeed. Drew Griffin, thanks so much. We're joined now by Dr. Ashish Jha, director of the Harvard Global Health Institute. Um, Dr. Jha, um, I first want to get your reaction to Drew's piece. How unusual is it for a company that has never brought a vaccine to market, at least not yet, to get this much money from the federal government to create something that's never been done before, a, a vaccine of this type? Yeah. So, Jake, thanks for having me on. Um, it, it is unusual. It's very unusual. But we are in unusual times. And uh, so this technology has been, uh, you know, d- has been developed. We think it has a uh, some reasonable chance of working. And I'm pretty comfortable with the idea of the U.S. government making a bunch of bets, because if they can bring this to market now, they're not the only ones in clinical trial. There are a few others. Uh, but if any of these guys can bring a, a vaccine to, to market in the next year, 18 months, that would be great. So unusual, but, you know, we're in unusual times. The NIH is testing Moderna's vaccine on humans without waiting for animal trials. Uh, earlier this week, I spoke with Dr. Paul Offit. I'm sure you're familiar with him. He's a vaccinology professor at the University of Pennsylvania. He said what worries him most about the, the mindset that we're all in uh, getting these vaccines to market is that steps are being skipped or, or compressed for expediency. Um, obviously, we're in an emergency situation. But do you share those concerns? I do. I do. And, you know, vaccines, while when they're developed under regular circumstances, are safe and effective, um, we're cutting a lot of corners. And I get why we're cutting some of those corners. And um, but so we do still need to make sure they are safe. And I think that we're doing some things in parallel. Uh, but we've got to make sure it's safe. If it's not safe, it's going to end up uh, really being a costly experiment. So we, I still think we need to pay attention to safety. Well, what are the risks? What are the risks of skipping the steps that normally would be taken? Animal trials, um, longer trials in terms of uh, chronology, in terms of time? Yeah. So, look, we know that uh, vaccines, obviously, if they're not developed in a, in a standard way, you can end up having really bad reactions to vaccines. Um, some vaccines, again, we're trying to elicit an immune response that clears the virus. But if, if it sometimes it has a theoretical possibility of generating kind of a hyperimmune response to the virus that could end up making you much sicker than you would have been otherwise. I'm not super worried that any of these things will come to be, but we only can be sure if you do the testing carefully, do it in large enough people, and then watch over time because we're going to want to make sure it's safe, not just immediately, but for the long run. As you know better than I, there are more than 100 potential vaccines in the works worldwide right now. Uh, Only eight are permitted to do human trials. Dr. Fauci says they're shooting for at least one of these vaccines to be ready by January, but even that isn't a guarantee. Do you think we'll be there? Will we have a vaccine ready by January if you had to bet? 
So January is really aggressive. I've been saying uh, 12 to 18 months. Uh, January obviously is now like seven, eight months. It's hard for me to see it. I hate contradicting Dr. Fauci. He is the expert on this. But that's a very, very aggressive timeline. I would put it more into spring of, to summer of 2021 if things go well. The other thing that Fauci and Moderna are discussing is mass producing vaccines before they even know for sure that it works. Um, take a listen to, to the rationale. We're going to have to make the investment in hundreds of millions of dollars to start developing a vaccine so that when you ultimately prove it works, you don't have to wait five or six months to scale up to get enough doses to give to a meaningful number of people. That's a risky financial circumstance, but it certainly, certainly is worth the risk given what's at stake. Do you agree it's worth the risk? It is. Look, we're going to end up, it's fine. Like if we end up wasting a few billion dollars because we made, let's say, five or six bets and only one of those six ends up panning out, it's not great. We don't want to waste money. But remember, the cost is if we can get a vaccine out six months earlier, it'll save millions of lives. It'll help our economy prosper. So I think financially these things are completely right. I just want to make sure that we don't really skip steps on safety. We've got to make sure these vaccines are safe. Um, but I think making bets and producing vaccines even before we know that they're ready uh, to be given to people is, a, is, again, we are in extraordinary circumstances. We're going to have to make decisions like that. All right, Dr. Ashish Jha, thank you so much for your time and expertise. We always appreciate it. Thanks, Jake. Coming up, the new grocery store reality, a shortage of meat. Up next, a suggestion that could stop this from happening again. Stay with us. Today, both Smithfield and Tyson Foods announced that they will reopen two of their Midwest pork plants with limited production. This comes after President Trump this week ordered plants to remain open to prevent a major meat supply shortage. And he provided those plants with some legal cover in case employees contract the virus at work and then sue the companies. I want to bring in CNN business anchor Julia Chatterley. Uh, Julia, great to see you as always. Industry experts would rather describe the food supply situation as a blip rather than a shortage. But at the same time, more grocery chains are limiting how much customers can buy. How soon until we customers, we consumers end up paying for these disruptions? Well, we're already paying for it, as you quite rightly point out, in terms of reduced supply. And that was the risk in the short term, just less choice when you go to the grocery store. There's two things going on here. There's our changing consumption habits. We're buying more because we're cooking more at home. We're eating less at restaurants. And that matters for packaging and processing. But the processing aspect of this is huge. The latest weekly data from the Department of Agriculture says that beef production is down by a quarter, pork production down by 15% compared to the same time last year. This is huge. This is way more than a blip. Listen to what the CEO of Albertson said about tackling this. We were all operating in a just-in-time environment. It's the right thing for steady states. But when you operate in just-in-time and you have a tight supply chain, it doesn't allow you to accommodate situations like this. I think we should all reflect as an industry and think about how to build some redundancy as we go forward. So I think this is a fair point, but the truth here is, is that the government should have stepped in earlier. It should have protected the farmers, too, because we might see prices rising for consumers 
farm, cattle prices are falling because they've got nothing to do or they don't know where to put the cattle because the processors can't take it here. Now the government is responsible for workers and it's responsible for safety in particular and ensuring food supply. All right, Julia Chatterley, thank you so much. Appreciate it. We'll see you thank next you. week. Coming up, handguns hidden in pizza boxes, drugs hidden in takeout containers. The new warning from Interpol about food delivery drivers. That's next. Interpol is warning today drug dealers are disguising themselves as food delivery drivers during the lockdown in the UK and elsewhere. CNN's Max Foster joins me now. And Max, are these all drug dealers in disguise or are legitimate couriers also unknowingly perhaps being used as drug mules? A bit of both, actually. So you have got dealers disguising themselves as delivery drivers. You've got drivers simply taking the cash because, of course, business is so dry at the moment. You've also got unwitting members of the transport community getting involved here. So in Malaysia, for example, there was a driver who went to pick up an Indian flatbread. Which, lay, which weighed 11 kilograms, would you believe? He reported to the police, and sure enough, it was, uh, the package was full of drugs from the restaurant going on to the, the drug dealers. Also in Ireland, uh, they found a pizza box which had two handguns in it and eight kilograms of cocaine. So this is the sort of stuff that police are having to deal with right now. Interpol calling it a new modus operandi for the drug dealers who are trying to disguise themselves, frankly, in these empty streets. All right, Max Foster, thanks so much. In South Africa, massive lines wrapping for more than a mile with people desperate for food. CNN's David McKenzie is in Johannesburg for us. And David, in addition to the desperation we see of all these people gathered because they're starving or at least very, very hungry, there must be concern that so many people gathered could spread the virus. Well, there is concern. And Jake, you just look at these lines, these extraordinary aerial shots more than a mile long, thousands of people from informal settlements near where I am right now, they were given uh, food parcels by a Muslim charity. And these are mostly foreigners, Jake, who don't have the support of the government directly. South African government has given up to 10% of its GDP just to keep people from falling over the edge. And that is the fear throughout the continent, frankly, that the hunger, that the desperation could be worse than the virus. Some good news today, though, the World Food Program has opened up a humanitarian air cargo transfer, uh, and they are able to get food and humanitarian workers across the continent where many of these commercial flights have closed down. But, you know, those lines just show you how desperate people are getting. Jake? It's a very dire situation. David McKenzie in Johannesburg, thank you so much. Back to our health lead. Today, we're going to remember Valentina Blackhorse, a 28-year-old from the Navajo Nation in Arizona whose life was tragically cut short by coronavirus. Valentina made a name for herself in the Navajo community, winning pageants and aspiring to one day become president of the Navajo Nation, along with African-Americans and Latinos. Uh, Native Americans are disproportionately affected by this pandemic. If the Navajo Nation were a state, the death toll per capita would be behind only New York and New Jersey. Valentina's sister told CNN, quote, she did everything she could for family. May her memory be a blessing. We'll be right back. Today, former Vice President Joe Biden is adamantly denying a former aide's claim that he sexually assaulted her in 1993. It's the first time 
Biden has publicly addressed the allegations by Tara Reid, who says Biden assaulted her 27 years ago when she worked in his Senate office. Here's what Biden had to say today. I'm saying unequivocally, it never, never happened. And it didn't. It never happened. I don't know why after 27 years, all of a sudden this gets raised. I don't understand it. But I'm not going to go in and question her motive. I'm not going to attack her. She has a right to say whatever she wants to say. CNN's MJ Lee has interviewed uh, Tara Reid and she joins me live. MJ, what else did the former vice president have to say about her allegations? Well, Jake, this was obviously a Joe Biden who was defiant and unequivocal in denying this allegation. He said this allegation from so many years ago simply did not happen. Uh, I think what we saw was a bit of a tough balancing act, right? Uh, He repeatedly said that women who come forward with this kind of serious allegation should always be heard, has a right to come forward, should be vetted, there should be an investigation. But at the same time, he really stressed that he believes there has been a close examination of her account and that nobody from that time is aware of such a complaint, including himself. Uh, And CNN has also interviewed some half dozen former Biden staffers who worked in his Senate office at the time of the alleged assault. And all of them told us that they were not aware of this kind of complaint. And in fact, this is just not the man that Joe Biden is. But of course, it is really important to note, Jake, that one thing Joe Biden did not uh, address in this interview are the people who are close to Tar Reid who say that they were told about the alleged assault at the time. That's right. There are contemporaneous accounts that she shared with family members and friends uh, about this alleged incident. Biden didn't say anything about that. Did he have anything to say about uh, her claim that she uh, made a complaint uh, to the, the Senate office about this? Well, Biden repeatedly said that he was not aware of any kind of complaint that was made at the time, uh, and none of his colleagues knew about any kind of complaints either. And he also said that if such a complaint were to exist, uh, they would be in the personnel files that are at the National Archives, not the University of Delaware. And he said that he would call on the National Archive to do a search and release anything that might be related to any kind of complaint. Uh, I just think it's very important for us to pause and be clear about what Tara Reid herself has said about uh, what she complained about and what she said. Uh, Remember, she said that she verbally uh, shared with a number of colleagues uh, that she was sexually harassed but didn't say anything about sexual assault. She also said that she filed a complaint with a personnel office on Capitol Hill. But again, in that case, too, she said uh, it wasn't about sexual assault. It was about sexual harassment. So I just think we should be clear that if some kind of document were to turn up, there's some kind of paperwork, at most it would address sexual harassment, not the alleged sexual assault that Tara Reid is talking about. All right, MJ Lee, thank you so much. Be sure to tune in this Sunday morning to State of the Union. My guests include top Trump Trump economic advisor Larry Kudlow, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, plus possible independent presidential candidate Congressman Justin Amash of Michigan. That's Sunday at 9 a.m. at noon Eastern. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Stay safe and stay healthy and stay home. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.